You're listening to Radio Activism, a production of the Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. When I was a kid, there was a kind of cliche political dialogue that went something like this. Protesters were critical of the United States, and then their conservative parents would say, if you don't like it, you should leave. But of course, nobody left, because the idea was to try to make it a better country. In a lot of ways, it seems like it didn't really work out so well. When you think about the environmental movement, for all the efforts we made and all the good laws that were passed, we are in a time in which the damage we're causing to nature itself is so extreme that some people are starting to protest in a different way. They're saying, I do not like this system, so I'm really going to leave. Only they're not leaving, exactly. They're going to the land and living their political and environmental ideals outside the system, or maybe on the edges of the system. Of course, this isn't exactly new. There were back-to-the-land movements in the 1960s and 70s. But now there's a whole new generation of people, and the movement looks a little different. And that's what Mark Sundin's book, The Unsettlers, is about. It's about people who are making their living on the land in really interesting ways and living really well, really interesting lives. And I have to say, this book hits home for me because it profiles people who've had the courage to do what most of us can't do or won't do, and what I've certainly often thought about but never done, namely withdraw from the crazy, toxic, addictive world that we live in and that, you know, is normal for most of us, and live from growing food, whether it's on a homestead or an urban farm, and make a living and have families there. Like many people, I suppose, I've often thought about what I would do, what we would do, if the world just fell apart and we had to grow our own food and harvest water here in the desert where I live and survive the winter. And last summer I actually thought, okay, I'm going to grow my vegetables, which I tried to do and that resulted in some nice green leaves that I ate and a lot of brown stalks and then my dogs dug a big hole in the middle of the spinach and went to sleep in the hole. But I digress. Okay, let's go now to my conversation with Mark Sundin. He's author of the new book, The Unsettlers in Search of the Good Life in Today's America. Welcome, Mark, to Radioactivism. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a really interesting book about people who are addressing a kind of conundrum that I think many people are feeling, namely that we are dependent on a system that we know is toxic and broken. Right. And we're just like living <laughs> that every day. Right. I mean, I think you, I read somewhere that you put it, it's like, we're paying to kill the planet. Yeah, not just kill the planet, but take away our own freedoms and, and sort of kill ourselves. Yeah. And uh, yeah, specifically uh, with that system, I guess I've kind of, I mean, it's very broad, but I, I in this book, I look most specifically at our systems for food, fuel, and finance. Right. Which seem to be the three things that we depend on every day. And when we look at them from afar, we say these are terrible industries that are that are ruining us. And so you set out to find people who are living differently, and you write about three families in Missouri, Michigan, and Montana. They all made decisions to live from the land in a direct way. They all grow food. And I thought it was so interesting you 
chose to exclude a lot of people too. So people who were independently wealthy, they didn't make the cut. Right. People who were associated with institutions like government and universities, they didn't either. Um, you didn't want hermits, people who, you know, men, basically, it's always men. Yeah, right. Who go <laughs> to a cabin the somewhere. The loner. The loner. And so, and, and, you know, you didn't want people like the Amish who were already born into that life. So that kind of narrowed the field a lot. And I feel like in some ways you were looking for people like, you know, maybe yourself or your readers, people like us who want to make good choices, but don't have a lot of resources. Right. I I was making up those criteria as I went along, uh, just following my own curiosity. And it wasn't until I kind of got to the end of my research that I realized I had basically like narrowed it down to find people like me who had uh, had a similar sort of critique of the world, but then made a much more dramatic decision than I have and actually decided to leave or renounce sort of commercial civilization and live this life of radical simplicity. Now, simplicity, as some of your, I mean, as you write about this book, isn't really all that simple. (laughs) No, in fact, the working title of this book was Simple. And as I got into the research, I realized that was going to be the wrong title because... Uh, yeah, simplicity implies just kind of taking it easy, maybe dropping out, maybe having a little room to do your yoga and uh, grow a tomato or two. And that's not at all what these people are doing. These people are really innovative. They're actually entrepreneurs in some ways, and they're totally engaged uh, as activists with transforming the world. I think it's such an interesting and important point that there's so many different kinds of activism. And a lot of people think about electoral politics and marching in the streets and things like that, and all of which are real and and good and important. But these are people who have very deep ideals and chose not only to sort of put them forward as political agendas, but to actually live that way. Talk about Ethan Hughes and Sarah Wilcox and how they came to buy an Amish farm in rural Missouri. Yeah, well, Ethan had been an activist. Uh, He had been at the WTO in Seattle, I guess that was 1999, and he'd been involved in some environmental uh, protests. And during the war in Iraq, he'd done a stage, something like a 20-day fast. But eventually, he felt that he didn't just want to live sort of a normal life and then go do activism. He wanted to incorporate that fight into his everyday life. And so uh, he and his wife spent some time in a Gandhian uh, community in France, and they basically tried to build their own in Missouri. And I guess the way that they connect the activism with the simplicity part is, uh, and so in their community, they don't use cars. They don't use electricity, not even solar electricity. They don't use the internet or computers or cell phones. Uh, they don't travel on airplanes. But they're, they follow this idea of um, Gandhian nonviolence. And for Gandhi, if you went out and bought a product that was procured through violence, then you were being violent yourself. So for Ethan and Sarah, they're not going to use oil because of the wars that we fight for oil and because of the displacement and deforestation of indigenous lands that we as a society do in order to get our oil. It's funny when you think about how much they've renounced and the whole idea of renunciation. And one gets one kind of gets the sense from reading about both of them that 
it's kind of renunciation, but it's kind of like clearing a space for something else that's preferable. Yeah. Um, earlier I did use the word renounce, but that probably wasn't the best one to use because I don't feel like Ethan and Sarah gave up a lot of things that they liked. Yeah. I mean, they actually preferred candlelight to electricity, so it wasn't a big sacrifice to stop using electricity. And they preferred riding in bikes to being in cars. So that was also not a big sacrifice. And they were able to find ways to, to stop using these products that they hated and stop supporting these industries, but actually uh, in the process find this sort of abundance of learning how to do things with their hands, that you know, these skills of like farming and building that have largely been forgotten in our sort of information age. And you know, using their bodies, being outside, things that I think a lot of activists forget are important. Yeah, or we kind of like squeeze them in in the forms of very strange things like standing inside a building and lifting weights. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there's, you know, the, the classic thing that, that modern people do is, is drive to the gym and work out and then drive home. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, maybe... Uh, and the gym, of course, uses a lot of electricity, ironically enough, when you get on one of those machines. And, you, you know, couldn't you accomplish all of those things by taking a long walk or a run or a bike ride and you would cut out all of the petroleum products and you might have a better time because you might be outside and, and seeing things and people that you're not going to encounter inside the gym or your car. And what's really so cool about how Ethan and Sarah are living, their place is called the Possibility Alliance, is that it's really not only a great place for them and for the many people who visit them every year, but also for their kids. And there's a passage in your book where you write about all the stuff that isn't even an issue that's a big issue with suburban kids, like wanting gadgets and... Yeah, playing with their phones at the table or demanding to be driven around in the car to the latest whether it's lessons or movies or practices. And so, yeah, you know, the, the, the kids are not getting a lot of the things that suburban kids get in terms of getting taken to soccer practice or violin lessons, but they're having all of this great stuff happening right on their land. They've set up a Waldorf school for them, and, you know, they just get to be outside and play a lot. What were the kids like? They were wonderful. They were, they were still pr pretty young. I think they were about three and seven when I was there, but... They were very fun. They loved to um, play with the animals, the goats, and the you know they had dogs and chickens and everything else. And they loved being outside. And they had seemed to have great imaginations because they don't have any electronic entertainment. So there was a lot of role playing and costumes and music and putting on uh, plays around the the homestead. Very interesting. One of the things that I think was important and interesting about that you write about, about Ethan and Sarah and the way they live, Ethan especially has very, very strong ideals and he's living by them. And the Possibility Alliance is, is all about those. He literally hasn't set foot in a car. His wife has. Right. But Correct. his ideals are so strong and he's so clear about living by them that his friends find him sometimes to be overly judgmental. And that's a, that's a, tricky line to walk yeah it is uh he can be um very uh, very strong personality even overbearing and to him he sees what needs to be done 
and he's doing it and he knows that other people see what needs to be done and they're not doing it and uh, he has he loses his patience for that sometimes yeah whereas the rest of us who might go visit him like you or or right. so many others probably don't see that they have the choices that that he's made like he you know he decided to give away he got he had some money he gave away every last penny of it right he inherited a hundred thousand dollars when he was in his 20s he gave it all away um you know and that there's this is a uh, it's a very tricky conversation in some ways because uh ethan and sarah both do come from a certain amount of privilege they um are white and they went to college and uh they're middle class but at the same time i think sometimes people try to say oh well they're privileged and so therefore their decisions aren't as important but their decisions are so amazing how you know the decision to give away a hundred thousand dollars the decision to not use cars the decision to get arrested at a fracking protest that takes a lot of courage and strength no matter where you're coming from and I, I often think when when people say, "Oh well, they're just privileged," it's kind of a way of exonerating their their own self from from not taking making decisions like that. Right. Exactly. Not not engaging in how difficult it is to make those decisions. Right. And you know, I, I mean, <laughs> going off on a tangent here a little bit, I, I've spent the after I finished this book, I spent uh, quite a bunch of time in Standing Rock, and saw that people without privilege and without power were making similarly brave decisions and putting their, their lives and their bodies on the line. The second section of the book is about Olivia Hubert and Greg Willerer. Olivia is a black woman and Greg is a white man from Detroit. They're urban farmers, very interesting people. And you go into the stories of their family's background. You kind of paint a picture of just how dramatically a city can change, how an economy can just get stood on its head. And it just reminds you that we are living essentially, I mean, sometimes we're insulated, sometimes we're not, but it's a boom-bust world. And that that is evident in Detroit to the point where tourists come in buses to see the ruins. It's called, I never heard this term, <laughs> ruin porn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At this point, they're still not tour buses. They they have to be a little hardier than that. But yeah, there are the tourists coming just to see the old factories and the bomb- bombed out neighborhoods. Yeah. And I'd never been to Detroit before this, but going was so just sad and devastating and made, made me realize that America has really failed in a lot of ways. And you don't see that in a lot of parts of America that are booming or that are beautiful. Um, but you, when you study or visit Detroit, you say, wow, we've never, uh, this country has never solved the problems it created through its initial sin of slavery. And we've never, uh, we talk about the boom and bust, we've never sort of confronted a lot of the worst parts of capitalism, which is that an entire city, neighborhoods, people become these commodities and when they're no longer useful, they just get abandoned. So when you look at Detroit and when you look at what these ur- urban farmers are doing, I mean, are they like making things grow in the in the rubble, in the ruin, in the land that is is so relatively worthless? Yeah, Greg and Olivia are making a living on a farm that is entirely made up of abandoned 
lots in more or less downtown, a neighborhood called Corktown, which is one of the old neighborhoods. And so they didn't have to buy these lots or even get really permission to use them. I think that most of them belonged to the city. They were taken for back taxes. Um, but the city doesn't know what to do with them. So they've been growing this food there, and they own one of the houses on the block. Most of the houses are, are no longer there. And it's... Uh, it's it's beautiful to see. I mean, it's really cool to see because it's so weird to see a homestead in, in Detroit. But it's also a little bit of renewal, I guess you could say, because before they were farming, you know, these there's crack houses and um, you know people shooting up on, in the bushes and like by having this farm being cultivated, having these blocks be cultivated, they've improved the neighborhood actually. Right. Right. And they are, I mean, Olivia is African-American and, and you write about kind of the long history of agricultural tradition, which is mostly exploitation, but nevertheless, there's a lot of knowledge there among African-Americans. And there is, with this couple, a real ideal of what an alternative economy could be. Right. And how that could serve working class people, African-American people. How is that working? What does that look like? Well, I should say first that I didn't know I was going to end up in Detroit when I started this book. But after uh, meeting people who might identify as preppers who were preparing for the collapse out in rural America, I sort of realized that, hey, that collapse is already underway. Now, hang on a second. Is preppers, is that the same as survivalists? No, survivalists are more like primitive skills people who are um, hunting with bow and arrow, I would say. Preppers are people who are preparing for the apocalypse or the collapse. So they might have a big bunker with a lot of food. They might have guns. They might have gold or uh, silver because they're waiting for the uh, currency to collapse, the dollar to collapse. And I thought those people would be in this book. But when I started to study them, I felt they were so motivated by this fear of the of cities collapsing. And I realized that, well, of course, several American cities have already collapsed. New Orleans, Detroit, you know, due to ecological catastrophe or economic catastrophe. So I wanted to see what the survivors looked like, the people who were not fleeing from the collapse, but were staying and were responding. And of course, uh, in those two cities, you know, the, the victims of the collapse are not white preppers or permaculturalists. They were poor people of color. Um, so I guess the, the point of all that is that the forces that have sort of aligned to destroy nature in America are in many cases the same forces that have exploited people of color. And to see in Detroit, you see that that resistance kind of merges that to have a farm in Detroit is to uh, you know it provides good food for people it does good for the land and for the neighborhood but it is also bringing some economic self-sufficiency to this community that has been abandoned and um, to have a, a black owned business in Detroit is an act of resistance right there and so is there I mean a significant number of African-Americans in Detroit who were eating fresh, healthy vegetables every day? I mean, mm, I think that's, that's sort question. of the ideal yeah, of the... Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I would say statistically the number is still pretty small because even at these farmers markets, uh, these products are, are more expensive than going out to the suburbs to a supermarket. But the number is growing, I'll say that, yeah. Yeah. Now, Greg is somebody who was very much against uh, Whole Foods when it came into Detroit. He didn't think it would last. I, it is, seem, does seem to still be there. Um, <laughs> and he had some really specific reasons why he was against it, even though they were asking him to be part of it. Yeah, so just uh, to back up for one minute, Detroit was called a food desert because no national chains of grocery stores were in city limits for about eight or nine years. They'd all left to the suburbs, they'd closed down. So people in the city uh, either could get their food at basically convenience stores, which are called party stores, or they could take a bus or drive out to the suburbs to a supermarket. And the bus system is not good. The car insurance is extremely expensive. A lot of people don't have cars. So anyway, uh, that's when Greg and Olivia started their farm. And after a few years, Whole Foods came in. And it was a big deal that a, a, a supermarket was coming back to Detroit. And it wasn't just any old one. It was the fancy one, Whole Foods. And they came to Greg and Olivia saying, we want to stock your uh, salad greens. And it would have been economically probably a great move for Greg and Olivia. But they didn't want to do it. And they thought uh, their idea about food justice was keeping the money in Detroit and not sending the money to Austin, Texas, which is where headquarters of Whole Foods is. And how are they doing economically? You know, they're um, scraping by, I would say. The, the, the advantage of living in Detroit is that the houses are so cheap. You can, you know, they've bought their house for $10,000, so they're not paying a mortgage like most of Americans. So they don't need to make as much money and their uh, overhead is quite low. So yeah, they're doing, they seem to be doing quite well. They actually just bought the house <laughs> next door to them and they're gonna use one of them as a, maybe like a nightly rental or a home for a, a farm employee. They seem to be doing quite well. We were talking a moment ago about simplicity or the illusion of simplicity. And there was a very funny passage in the book where you write about how Greg Willer says, uh, how many people does it take to make an urban farm? The answer, 25 filmmakers and journalists to do pieces on farming, 63 grad students to study the farm, a few people from the non, not-for-profit complex to hold meetings about farming, a few elected officials to have their photos taken at the farm, and about five people to do the farming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Greg has a very cutting and direct way of, 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 of bluntness like that. And I love that quote because it says so much. It says... First of all, that in this sort of information era, I think that most people who go to college think it's beneath them to do physical work like farming. But they think it's noble to be in a nonprofit that studies an urban farm or to be a journalist like me who goes and writes about it. You know, they're, they're doing sort of white collar work. And Greg just has no tolerance for this way of thinking. He, uh, um, and he has no tolerance for politicians or academics who, who come around and, and claim credit when they work so hard. And they're always reminded me that. And they said these people who come in and think they can get a grant and, and write reports and write proposals, they don't know what it takes to farm. You have to be out and on your hands and knees for 12 hours a day getting this work done. 
there's always the element of race in Detroit. And so people, black people in Detroit, most of, or I should say all of them who came from the South at some point in the great migration had farming skills and they've been farming for decades in their side lots and their backyards. And it wasn't until recently when kind of white newcomers showed up and started doing this urban farming that the media started to pay attention and the foundation started to, to pay attention and give money. So there's been a little bit of backlash among the African-American community saying, hey, we're here, we've been here, we've been doing this. If you're going to give money and give media attention, you need to focus on us. And was there any result from that? Yeah, the uh, Detroit Black Food Security Network, which is a nonprofit that's all um, black operated, they recently got a huge grant from the Kellogg Foundation. Um, and so they're doing great work. And I interviewed them. But for the, the purpose of this book, I was more interested in uh, families that were not taking any kind of outside funding. So th that's not what this book is about. But the f uh, urban farming scene is thriving right now in Detroit. Very interesting. The third part of the book is about Lucy Brieger and Steve Elliott. They are a bit older. They've got kids now who are high school and college age who were raised on the farm. And it's a it's kind of like a textbook case of this book changed my life. Lucy read a book <laughs> by Wendell Berry called The Unsettling of America, and the title of your book, The Unsettlers, comes from that, I think. Right. And um, she read that, and it actually changed her direction. Tell us that story. Yes, yeah, she was a graduate student at the University of Montana in environmental studies, and she had an internship where she would go work at the state capitol in Helena um, doing environmental sort of watchdog work and trying to get legislation passed and trying to lobby the uh, the senators and the, the legislators. And she read the book by Wendell Berry, The Unsettling of America, which came out in 1977. And one of the lines in there, and it's mostly about how industrial agriculture is destroying the American farm, the family farm. And one of the lines is uh, something like, environmentalists may actually be doing more harm to the world by proxy through their consumption than they're doing good by the organizations that they belong to. And she thought that was true. She thought that um, that the organizations were kind of getting their butts kicked because it was during the Reagan era when he was rolling back the EPA. And um, I mean, it's the exact same thing that's happening now, of course, basically putting someone in front of the, in charge of the EPA who would kill it. And she thought that um, some of these academics and lobbyists were sort of twiddling their thumbs while the, the earth was burning. And she wanted to do work that was more essential and that was more, uh, had a, a more clear sense of accomplishment. And back then, you know, this is before Michael Pollan and before the local food movement, environmentalists didn't think about farming back then. They thought about species extinction and um, they thought about uh, clean air clean water but they didn't think about how can we grow food in a way that does not destroy us because we can't stop growing food like we might be able to stop using computers or using cars i mean we won't but we could but we can never stop growing food that's what that's the first economy and so she was a real pioneer along with her husband and their partners in the farm in this what later became organic food local food Right, right. And this whole idea that farming 
and land conservation can be one and the same is a really important idea. I mean, so many people to this day think about conservation as taking land out of any kind of economic production system and making it pristine where the antelope can play or whatever. Right. But this is about conserving the land that we are using to survive economically and to and to eat from. Yeah, and this is, I mean, I think a real blind spot the that the environmental movement still has is turning land into museums where we can go and do recreation there or just sightsee. And of course, tourism is a fossil fuel industry. You got to get in your car or your plane to go look at the pretty sites. So I would love to see the environmental movement you know, be a little more serious about the fact that land is for human use, that we have to grow food, that we have to have a sacred connection to it other than just as tourists. And that is something that Lucy and her husband Steve set out to do. What does that actually look like? I mean, you've visited all of these places and spent time and got to know these folks. Yeah, for them, uh, they started this in the early 80s, back before the word organic had come into into use. They were doing something called biodynamic farming. And they were living in a teepee uh, off the grid and running this organic vegetable farm. And over the years, they just kept getting smarter and more innovative and also influential. Um, you know, Steve Jobs famously said that the, c the customer doesn't know what he wants until I tell him what he wants. And that's how it was with organic food. People didn't know that they wanted to be eating arugula or kohlrabi uh, because it wasn't grown. There was The producers weren't producing it. And so Steve and Lucy figured out what they could grow organically and sustainably. And then they went out to market that to the people of Western Montana, and they really succeeded in changing the eating habits of people. And I, I think this is a, a funny thing about the local food movement or foodies. A lot of skeptical people say, oh, you know, foodies, they just are snobs. They have highbrow taste and they don't want to eat peas and carrots. They only want to eat jicama or arugula. <laughs> But it's quite the opposite. The food movement is not about the consumer. The food movement is about the producer. It's about changing the means of production. And the reason we eat what we eat, uh, things like wheat and corn and soy, of course, is because that's what the corporations can produce in mass. And if you start producing the food a different way, it's going to yield a different harvest, and you're going to have to change our taste to eat that. I was struck by really in all three of the sections of the of your book, the incredible creativity and intelligence of each of the people you write about. And that's really part of the story. It's not just like hard work and doing it the way mom and dad did it on the farm and the right. generation before right. that. It's about continual adaptation. Yeah, and innovation. And um, I think that in our culture, we make such a big deal about innovators like Steve Jobs or people who invent apps. But the credit is only given, I think, when the innovation yields a huge amount of money and a big initial s stock offering. Uh, but what if we treasured innovators like these people who are never going to get rich growing small-scale vegetables, but are in fact changing the world and are innovating and are figuring out different ways, like, you know, how can I get my soil in Detroit to be fertile? 
That's a big question. And and how can I do it without without using any money? <laughs> and they're fucking they're coming up with solutions to these these conundrums. And so uh Yeah, they got what was it? They got somebody to dump the the landscaping clippings. Yeah, they got the leaves and they get that for free and because the the person who had the dump truck filled with leaves would have had to pay to drop them at the city dump. And Greg said, "Well, you can drop them here for free." Right. And um, then he would get the coffee grounds from, and he would get the the spent barley from the breweries, and he would just um, kind of, sp- and he'd get the manure from the the dump. I mean, excuse me, from the zoo, <laughs> the, the Detroit Zoo. And these are things that, of course, no one would ever think to do unless they needed to. And um, but they're they're brilliant. They're they're coming up with ways to change the waste stream and um, take take turn. Uh, damaged ruined land into fertile crop producing soil and to me these are the kind of innovations that we need much more than another uh, social media app right exactly now lucy and steve have done this kind of farming their entire adult lives as you said they started in the 1980s they had three kids one of the kids went to art school in new york city and you write a kind of interesting little passage about about him and the choices that he's making what happens and i think this is a a kind of question that's been going on for some time in a lot of different ways what happens when the kids don't necessarily carry on their parents work stay on the farm yeah steve and lucy don't really think that their kids are going to follow in their footsteps and i think that's fine with them they're they didn't really set out to turn their kids into their clones. But what was interesting to me, you know, the, the first two families I profiled had young children. And then Steve and Lucy have these kids who are in college now. And I, it's most people who live this way kind of give it up when their kids decide they need, want a car or want to go to college or want guitar lessons or braces or all the things that that normal American kids want these days or need. And Steve and Lucy managed to not really compromise on their radical vision and still succeed in um, amassing a beautiful home, 80 acres of land. They have a car. They're now on the grid. They have solar panels. Uh, But it was a real challenge because their kids' tuition was going to be the same price as their yearly income, which is about $50,000. And they had to really weigh whether or not they were willing to change their vision because they had been living on a very small income for 30 years and they didn't want to suddenly go into debt or have to go get second jobs in order to pay for art school. And if you want to find out what happened, ladies and gentlemen, you can read (laughs) The Unsettlers by Mark Sundin. You write about in several different places in the book and in several different ways, the founding fathers and the American tradition. And one of those, one of the quotes is about how simplicity is a form of dissent. Mm -hmm. What did that mean at our founding? Well, initially, you know, these uh, Jefferson and Adams, they imagined a country that was free from uh, the religious religious persecution of Europe, also from the aristocracy, and also from the economic colonialism, which is to say we were forced, or the colonists were forced to buy goods from 
Europe, from England, that were taxed and cost a lot of money. <laughs> and they didn't want that. And so in some cases they would say, okay, we're going to stop using those products and we're going to live more simply. Um, and of course the Quakers did this. Uh, it actually became very patriotic around the time of the revolution to wear simple cloth instead of the fine textiles from England because it, it showed your neighbor that you were not supporting uh, colonialism anymore, that you were going to be a patriot. And uh, this tradition, of course, was carried on with uh, the abolitionists, uh, Quakers, Thoreau, who boycotted slavery by not wearing cotton and not eating um, certain products like sugar or not smoking tobacco because they didn't want to support slavery. Uh, at that point, that tradition of ethical boycott kind of went away in America for about 100 years. And what I found was that it went to Europe, and Tolstoy was a big champion of it. And then his sort of protege was Gandhi, who used those exact tactics um, in the salt march, so boycotting the, um, the uh, Indians were, were forced to buy salt, and they were no longer allowed to harvest salt, which is what they've been doing for thousands and thousands of years. So that was how actually the Indian independence movement began was this salt march when, when Gandhi marched to the sea with thousands of people and harvested salt illegally, doing civil disobedience. So now that has come back, and it's funny, we think that these ideas are Gandhian. Well, actually, they're in this long stream of American tradition that Gandhi was very profoundly influenced by. Yeah, and it's such an important piece of our history that we forget because we kind of went 180 degrees away from that toward a kind of like ideology of consumerism. Yeah, and industrialism and, and, and uh, corporate farms. I mean, I think that Jefferson and Adams would just be rolling in their graves to see what, what's become of their initial vision and that we've sort of given up our independence and our freedom uh, in order to have more, uh, to have cheaper, comfortable products. There's another quote by Adams, which I thought was also really interesting he wrote, John Adams wrote, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, and so on, uh, in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, <laughs> and porcelain. <laughs> I mean, so it's already right there at the beginning. I mean, going from uh, simplicity to... I don't want to say decadence, but, a, you know, I mean, that level of, of detail in the arts. Yeah, that quote to me, I, I, I just, uh, I struggle with it all the time because as a, a writer, an artist, I feel like I've benefited from those who came before me who did the heavy lifting of the war and, and the politics so that I can be a writer. Yeah. And, you know, this kind of gets back to that, that quote from Greg about the... Um, the journalists and the and the academics who come to study his farm, it feels in some ways it's almost gone too far where everyone wants to have a creative career and very few people want to do the hard work of providing the food. <laughs> Not realizing that that might be the most creative career ever. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I don't think that um, John Adams could have in any way predicted that a person in in this era could 
live so comfortably without ever breaking a sweat or getting a callus on their finger you know that the, the manual labor has sort of gone away yeah for the the consumer class anyway there's another big question that is suggested by the book and that is if everyone lived sustainably if everybody started making choices more like the people that you're writing about maybe getting off petroleum and fossil fuels maybe even using passive solar instead of solar panels growing food instead of buying it etc etc providing your own entertainment instead of having a continual stream of entertainment coming into your house through machines if we all did that let's say every one of us tomorrow did that the entire world economy would grind to a halt immediately and so the question is is that a goal yeah that's a really good question and I don't think I'm smart enough to know the answer to that, but I, I do agree that, that if everyone suddenly lived like this, you know, we would no longer have airplanes and we would no longer have computers. <laughs> On the other hand, if everybody in the entire world suddenly started living like me, which is to say driving a car and using a lot of electricity, you know, the average American diet of, of fossil fuel consumption, we would need four to seven planets to provide for us. So on the one hand, yeah, it's, uh, you, we can say, oh, we can't all live like that. But the fact is we can't all live the way we're living. Like the way we're living is we're heading towards a waterfall and we just don't see it. Right. And I think, again, a lot of times when I hear that, I heard that a lot with my previous book about the man who quit money. I feel like when people say oh, we can't all do that, it's often a way to say, I'm not willing to, to do that. It's an excuse more than a critique. And that I, f I do find that sort of frustrating, that, um, that people are looking for a reason to discount what is becoming more and more obviously true. Yeah, and looking for an excuse to stay in their comfort zone. Exactly. Essentially. Yeah. And you have, I mean, right in the beginning of the book, you have a quotation by Wendell Berry who asks, how could we divorce ourselves completely and yet responsibly from the technologies and powers that are destroying our planet? The answer is not yet thinkable. And I, that sentence, like the answer is not, does, does that mean he's thought it, but it's not thinkable for the rest of us or we don't know yet? I think he's saying that, that even he doesn't know, that he doesn't see how it's possible. And this was in 1977 that he wrote that. And I would say it's become even less thinkable now because we have become so much more dependent on on cars and airplanes and uh, computers. I mean, I hate to be a, a wet blanket, but I recently read that the internet now burns more fossil fuels than the commercial airline industry. No way. Yeah. So when we have our tiny little phone in our pocket and we're like, oh, what's the weather? You know, can I order a pizza? It seems like you're not using any energy because the thing's so small and efficient. But of course, every time you go online, some server somewhere is lighting up and spinning <laughs> its wheels. <laughs> and um, you're, burning, you're burning carbon every time you go online. And it's, you're so removed from that. You don't, there's no way to even... You know, when you drive a car, you at least get to smell the exhaust and you know that like you're burning something, you have to put gas in the tank. But yeah, we've become, we're just becoming more and more dependent on fossil fuels at the exact time 
when it's clear that we can't. And actually, to, to get back, to bring it back to this American tradition, I feel like the fossil fuel industry right now is so analogous to the, the slavery, the slave trade in 150 years ago, in the sense that everything we do is reliant on it. We may recognize that it's immoral, that it's killing people and who are losing their homes to, to climate change, and yet we can't stop because we don't know any other way. Right. And then, of course, the same thing happened in slavery was that you had the church came around and said, you know, actually, slavery is okay. And you had the academics came around and said, actually, this is, you know, black people are inferior, so it's okay. And you had the politicians who said, okay, it's, it's slavery is okay. And it's the, uh, it's the class of thing, we know what's wrong, but there's such a powerful industry buying off our critics and our people who make opinion that we're s now we're thinking, oh, well, maybe climate, warm climate change isn't real. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, the few people who still actually think that. But, I mean, slavery did end and a war was fought. Have you looked at, like, what is the mechanism that, that made it flip in the face of that, bi as you call it, buy-off? What made slavery flip? Yeah. What, yeah. What? Th that's, that gets really complicated because the abolitionists were, were nonviolent. They were, um, they had kind of invented this term called non-resistance was what it was called back then. And they were deeply Christian and they said slavery's wrong, but, but starting a war to stop it would also be wrong. And uh, on the one hand, I think they really changed public opinion to where the public was ready to go, for, go to war to stop this. And in the end, uh, William Lloyd Garrison uh, supported the war, even though he'd been this, this radical pacifist his whole life, but he thought it was the only way to end slavery. And so uh, the actions that the people in my book are taking, I would say that for the large part, they're, they're in the nonviolent tradition. Are they going to be able to stop the oil and gas industry? I don't know. Um, again, you know, I was up at Standing Rock, and when people put their bodies in front of that pipeline, they were beaten down by the state violently. And I think that that's going to be a reality. The book, The Unsettlers, In Search of the Good Life in Today's America, is also full of love stories. You tell about how all of these couples met, you also tell your own story, which I really appreciate because it makes the book more of a personal narrative as well as a wonderful work of journalism, which it is. How did the writing of this book affect you? How did it change you? How did it change, if it did, the way you live? Well, I've been sort of uh, finding little things to do to get away from the industrial food, fuel, and finance for years before and during this, and those were things, um, maybe they're not little, but they were things like taking my money out of Wells Fargo and putting in the credit union and refinancing my house so I no longer had to pay Bank of America, riding my bike everywhere, and, or I should say, I didn't ride my bike across the country, but you know, to the grocery store anyway. Um, so those little things I continued to do, but as I got deeper into this research, uh, I realized that these people had found work that they really loved. And while they were having a very small carbon footprint, I think what was more important to them was the feeling that they were 
giving their entire energy to transforming the world. And I guess one of the revelations that came to me during this was that I'm probably never going to be a very good farmer. It's not my aptitude, but I'm good at writing and I love writing and I like to do it every day. And that work is actually maybe my vocation. That's my right livelihood more so than dropping out or living off the grid or being a, a farmer. So I think that was a sort of happy uh, realization to come to was it like, I know what my work is and I need to do my work. And your work in some sense is part of this larger movement that they are also involved in. And that if you try and you're, you, you write about how your wife points out to you, Mark, you don't like farming. <laughs> right, you don't like right. fixing things. <laughs> right. You don't like getting cold or wet. Yeah, I am. Um, I have, you know, I have a limb. I, I like doing that stuff on a small scale, maybe, right. you know, once a month, <laughs> but not every day. Uh, yeah. And, and so, you know, I was in a pretty unique position as, as having been what I like to call a dirt bag and living in my car and having been a, a guide, a wilderness guide for so many years. Um, I had access to people like this, and I, I think I understood their their motivations pretty deeply. But also having been a journalist, I have a foot in the New York publishing world. Uh, this book, you know, it comes out from Penguin Random House. It's not like a, a mom-and-pop lefty press. And I felt like my position was pretty unique to bring these ideas that are so far out of the mainstream and bring them to to a mainstream readership um it's like a, a book that 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 i really liked was the big short by michael lewis and he took these incredibly boring uh, uh sort of arcane complicated ideas about collateral delivered derivatives or whatever they were called yeah yeah and 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 made it entertaining so people can now understand what happened to our economy and how we got scammed and i think my goal with this book is is similar it's like even if people don't change a thing i think the book is entertaining enough that they're going to get to the end and if people are suddenly thinking and talking about passive solar and gandhian nonviolence and rocket stoves rocket, rocket stoves, heaters what i never yeah, heard of yeah and food deserts right. and um you know the sort of legacy of 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 racism in detroit like if i can get that stuff out to a, a broader audience i feel like i've i've succeeded at something the book is called the unsettlers in search of the good life in today's america mark sundin thank you so much for being with us thanks for having me you can find out more about Mark Sundin at his website, MarkSundin.com, and I will link to that at Radioactivism.net. He's written a number of books. I actually talked to him a few years ago when his book came out called The Man Who Quit Money, and I will make a link to that interview as well on Radioactivism.net. If you have questions or comments, please email me, mc at radiocafe.media. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.